Hello and welcome back to Yukilaf Abroad. My name is Andre and I'm joined by my co-hosts Alexa and Nathan. Um, over the past couple of months, we've been busy here um, helping new arrivals adjust to life in Australia. And then we've also been helping to organize Ukrainian events. So we apologize for our absence from um, our slight delay in episode uploads. Yes. yes. About seven months, but apologies and we are back. So in today's episode, we kind of thought we would do a summary of what's happened whilst we've been off air and a bit of a bit of a dive into recent events that have happened in the last 48 to 24 hours. So um, do you want to kick us off, Nathan? Uh, yeah, so the first thing would be um, how the diaspora and Ukraina have um, kind of united, not just um, Ukrainians abroad, but just the entire world itself. Um, it was pretty fascinating when I saw it. I actually remember one of the, the very first online references to the war that I saw was, um, it was actually a meme. And it mentioned, I don't know if you guys remember that Simpsons episode where Homer buys the car. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, what country is this from? And the guy says it no longer exists. So it had that about Ukraine when Russia first invaded. And I would say a week after that, it was just nonstop support for Ukraine. So from Ukraine being the butt of the joke in that it no longer exists to now being, you know, this resistance movement um, where you, you know, the memes of farmers taking Russian equipment. I mean, it was a complete 180 in the way the world perceives Ukraine. And I thought it was amazing, not just how the, the Ukrainian government worked to change public perception, but how the entire diaspora kind of came together and worked to lobby and work to influence the the countries that we all live in to get support for Ukraine. One of the people, sorry, one of the groups um, that I saw was they managed to fundraise enough money to buy Bayraktars from Turkey. Was this the one by Serhii Pratola? Yes, there's that one. I think that one, they managed to buy three of them. Then there is the Latvian one, there's a Polish one, and I think there's another country. They managed to buy them within a couple of days. They managed to fundraise enough money within a couple of days. Isn't so. Bulgaria one of them? I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. But what I love, though, is with the money raised by Ukraine for the like the people's Bayraktar, the company's like, we're just going to give them to you for free. And so then they were able to buy access to like high-tech satellites instead. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And here in Australia, we've sent the Bushmasters over. And apparently there's another set of Bushmasters that are in negotiation to be sent again, which would be great. Because the reviews coming from the Ukrainian soldiers is that they're incredibly safe. They're incredibly reliable. And they they just love using them. I'm pretty sure they were used in the Kharkiv offensive anyway. Yeah. And in, um, what's interesting is in Russia's, I don't know if you remember, they did that parade of destroyed Ukrainian military hardware. Mm. They actually have a Bushmaster on display there. because Where what, did Russia do one? Where they did like, they had all the, um, I don't know if it was Red Square or somewhere in Russia, but they had it on display all the different. Um, oh. Uh, yeah. Bits of so hardware. So they copied Ukraine. In- yes. <laughs> and they had one and it has a destroyed Bushmaster there from Australia. So a few have been lost, but um, yeah. Oh, okay. They're, they're, they're good hardware from what I've heard. Uh, in terms of social media, it's actually been quite uh, successful in some cases and even uh, spread like huge awareness. So on Twitter, there's heaps of messages that talk about like day-to-day activities of the Ukrainian army or like politics and stuff. And especially when it comes to 
the massacres and the genocide that are happening in Butcher and Izium, um, you just see uncensored photos, videos of them, of dead uh, Ukrainians actually being pulled uh, pulled out of the ground um, to be documented and stuff. So that in that case, it's kind of surprising um, awareness. Yeah, I remember when the Syria conflict was happening, you didn't see a lot of these kinds of things. And in the Gaza Strip, I know if there's posts posted about like um, Israeli missiles and stuff that have been hit, Facebook will actually take them down and it says it violates their community standards. So I think that it's actually good if they do show what it looks like because it's not hiding what war looks like. So I think anytime there's a war, I think that these um, media companies like Facebook and Twitter and all these companies should actually show what's happening and not try to hide the fact that all these people are being killed. I think I'm- Facebook had a couple of issues where they would um, delete like Facebook groups or like hide users and stuff that were posting stuff like that. Mm. And I think the other thing that's a positive is that because um, Ukraine is so active on social media, you can almost track the activity of the troops. Like you see like them posting stuff when they're on their rest breaks. You can see like... Um, you see official stuff from the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, but you also see like unofficial videos released on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook of the Ukrainian army in action. What's that other app they use? Um, the, the Telegram. F- Telegram as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can see like firsthand like what the Polish tanks are doing, what the HIMARS from America are doing, what the UK anti-missile systems are doing in Ukraine. Hmm. And so I think. In one sense, it builds more of a connection for people from those countries because then they'd be like, oh, look, our government donated this stuff so we can see that it's actually being put to use and it's on the front lines or like it's being used to like train troops and all that kind of stuff. And go against Russian propaganda. I mean, if it wasn't for that, there would be no way to prove Zelensky was still in Kiev until he did that video where you've got, um, was it Shmahal with the phone trying to show what date it is? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I should have pulled up a newspaper, be, be old school. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was good as well because then Zelensky can literally just communicate to his people and it's kind of going against um, and defeating all the Russian propaganda that was aimed to demoralize the country when they first thought that they could take it in, what, three days, two days? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think also, um, and this is obviously a testament to the societal transformation that's happened in ukraine is that like ukrainian like government ministries like particularly the ministry of foreign affairs they're so quick to respond now on social media and put out official statements to anything that happens around the world Mm -hmm. and so it's good because like obviously i think a lot of people have that stereotype of like soviet style bureaucrats still running ukraine but i think as we've seen in this war for, for sure is that it's the younger generation that's taking the fight how are they going on the battlefield? Yeah, so I think we should start sort of from the beginning where um, when the war or the invasion happened. So for those who don't know. Yeah, so just a quick summary. Um, a lot of war experts and Western media, they assumed that Kiev would fall in 72 hours. Some I think even they assumed the whole, the whole country would collapse. Yeah, yeah, because when you looked at the map, you had them coming from Belarus the northeast, the east, and then from Crimea as well. So, a lot of people underestimated Ukraine. Um, and within those 72 hours, Ukraine managed to show how strong they are. 
and the fact that they could actually be hold and even push back in some cases the Russian advance. Yeah. Like, you I- look at Chernihiv and Sumo. They were completely surrounded except for, like, the small sliver. They were under siege for, I think, a couple of months. Mm. And they never went under. They held up their area and, in turn, helped alleviate um, the pressure on the Kiev. Pressure on Kiev. Yeah. That first 72 hours was a lot of just try and survive, find out where everything's coming from. Because that was, you know, from the north, from the south. It was from everywhere. Mm. And, yeah, they managed to hold it. And I definitely think that the morale boost came from those Snake Island guys because that was the yeah. first indication that they weren't going to give up when they tell the warship to go F themselves. Yeah. I think also, though, um, is that a lot of the Western expectations came from... Because obviously Afghanistan happened, what, less than mm-hmm. six months before? And I'm sure that played a huge factor in Putin's assessment of what would happen. And mm. I think, like, the West obviously saw that, like, in their eyes, like, if... like. They, if assume, Ukraine if falls, yeah. there was a propped up regime in their opinion, mm-hmm. and they were like the people. Like, obviously, there's a dedicated army, but then they were like the people will give up pretty quickly, and I think that's where part of the assessment came from. But also, I think it comes from the fact that like Russia is the world's second superpower in very big quotation marks, mm-hmm. and, and they, they completely that completely just got thrown out because <laughs> America took what a week to take out Iraq. When they invaded? I think it was 10 days. To take out... To completely occupy. I think it was longer than that because they were they were bogged down for a while. And then eventually when they did I surrender, th- they spent a long time trying to get Saddam, which was the main goal. And look No, no, me- but I'm saying like in terms of like them getting to Baghdad oh, I can't and remember. overthrowing, I'm pretty sure it was quick. It was quick. I remember there was a guy called Baghdad. They called him Baghdad Bob because he'd be like, no, the Americans aren't here. And they'd literally be like tanks behind him. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so I think, yeah, I think a lot of people just assumed if it was a superpower invading another country, it'd be very quick. Yep. yep. And obviously that is a fallacy as we can see Ukraine, even with its Soviet, you know, 1980s arms, which was what the majority of the army Jesus, was equipped yeah. with. But like obviously, like modernized and maintained, was able to stand up to Russia using its latest tech. And since 2014, there's been the big modernization. Mm, yes, um, the troops were what less than a hundred thousand before that. So when the Russians took Crimea, there was eight thousand combat-ready troops in the entire Ukrainian army, and then Ukraine went into this war with two hundred and fifty thousand um, troops. And with, I think, a hundred or two hundred thousand veterans from the Donbass War. Yeah, yeah. So they were ready for it. Unlike places like um, Afghanistan, which was more of an internal kind of yeah. Well, yeah. And so, even sorry. when you look at Donbass, and uh, the whole objective that Russia says it is, is to occupy um, Donbass and then claim it as part of the DPR and LPR, and then for them to ascend to the Russian Federation. Um, when you look at the, I think it was the second phase of the war after they'd already retreated from Kiev and the, the front lines had pretty much stalled in the, and like they were, they were constant. They didn't really change that much. I think it took them weeks just to take like only a couple of kilometers. Mm. Well, yeah, it took them what, like almost a month to take Severodonetsk. And, and then, like, and, yeah. and lesser chance, and it, they're two cities right next to each other. Yet it took them a month to 
subdue them. And I think, and even like Popozna, that's really close to the um, pre twenty uh, pre February twenty fourth um, front lines with the uh, LPR. And so, like, that took forever. I think it was around the same time that Lesser Chunks fell was when Popasna had fallen. Yeah, and it's even the same. Like, like the Ukrainian army is still on the outskirts of Donetsk. Like, they haven't moved from there. So, mm. it's obvious that, like, you know, liberating Donbass wasn't their strategic goal at the start. It might be now, mm. now that their army is... Fatally weakened and demoralized. Yep. And then when you look at um, the the recent offensive in Kharkiv, um, so I think beginning of July, end of July um, to September, they were constantly saying, um, "We want like we're going to be doing an offensive in Kherson. We're going to be taking Kherson. I want it." I can't remember if he said end of September or uh, if someone just mentioned it. But then he said, like, we want, like, complete information blackout. If you know anything about, like, troop movements and stuff, don't put it on social media. Um, and that's it, right? It's, it, but he kept mentioning Kherson, Kherson, the offensive. We're doing it. We're going to be there. And then Ukraine, they started bringing in their HIMARS. They started attacking the Antonovsky Bridge and the Novohorkovka Bridge as well, um, completely destroying them, having them to they, they pretty much put russia on the defensive in Kherson, mm-hmm. and then on september 6th the Kharkiv offensive just came out of nowhere yeah i know because in like the space of a couple of days yeah they, they like liberate take... an entire province yeah because they or half a province they yeah. trick them and i think that it was utterly humiliating for russia which is probably why we're seeing so much rage from putin right now simply because not only did they manage to take back those key cities like Izium and stuff that they were using as strategic points. Mm. But now they look like they're coming into um, Luhansk. And that's pretty much everything Putin's kind of worked for over the last few years is maintaining Luhansk and Donetsk and backing up the separatists. So if he loses that, the, the Ukrainian army is basically undoing things he's worked for the last, you know, what are we up now? Eight, Eight years. years over. So a lot of his rage that we're seeing now um, is pretty desperate given the fact he doesn't want any of that being undone. Well, and you look at the, some of the like reports that some of the soldiers were saying, and they just said, like, you rock up to the town and just no soldiers are there. It's just Ukrainian citizens. Yeah, there was one. I saw a video today. And some of them were just like running, like they were, they left their tanks there. Some of them left their boots. Yeah. They yeah. got in the trucks and drove without their boots on. Yeah, and they completely swapped into civilian clothing or onto, like, bicycles and ran from the Ukrainian army. I think that showed you just how effective the advance was because the Ukrainian army... Like, yes, there were pockets of resistance, but the Ukrainian army just went around them. Mm. And I think that's why they freaked out because they had no idea where the Ukrainian army was. And and they they weren't backed up up enough because they shipped all their better resources to defend Kherson. Yeah. Yeah. I think they managed to get, like, 60 kilometers in from, like, where the front line was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, well, are they in front of me? Are they behind me? Are they next to me? And I yeah. think it was around Izium they almost got um, encircled. encircled there before yep. the Russians Because they did escaped. a classic pincer maneuver from the south part of that Kharkiv region in the north. So, they, yeah. yeah, they almost encircled them. And I think, um, I don't know if you've seen uh, the Matero Kolaba on Stephen Colbert. He went on 
yesterday, but he was saying what was um, nice to hear is that the people are still waiting mm-hmm. on the Ukrainian army to come. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the videos are obviously genuine of, like, Ukrainian troops arriving and civilians, like, running out to greet them. Yeah. I'm interested to see what will happen is if Ukraine moves into Luhansk and Donbass, what the reception is going to be like there, because those people have lived under separatist Russian The northern part of Luhansk, I'm assuming, will be similar to Kharkiv. Mm. The cha- the interesting part will be is the ones that have been under occupation for eight years. Eight, eight years. Yeah. But then there's, like, um, not miscellaneous. Um, what's the word for when it's, like, a personal story and you extrapolate it? Oh, uh, you're talking about, is it anecdotal? Yeah. So there's anecdotal evidence of, like, example of people who have family members in Crimea. Yeah, and those people have never seen themselves as Ukrainian or, like, written or texted in Ukrainian. Mm. And all of a sudden, they've started texting back in Ukrainian. <laughs> and it's like, what the, what's this change? Where does this come from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess that t- kind of takes us to what's happening in the last 48 hours with... Uh, Putin's call for a partial mobilization and conscription of citizens that have previous military experience. So this definitely demonstrates that this special military operation is not going according to plan. And now he's going to have to back up the rest of this invasion with civilians that, based on the uh reception and the protests you've seen on the streets of Russia, it's not going over too well. Or do you see the price of a one-way ticket from Moscow to Turkey? I have not, but I heard they've been going up. 13500 for economy. Jeez. And, and what, it, was you, what were you saying, Andre? Like, apparently men are banned from, like, trains and stuff now? Yeah, so I think from the National um, Air Company and Railroad, uh, 18 to 65-year-old Russian men aren't allowed to purchase tickets anymore uh, to exit the country. Lord. And then... Um, I've been looking up, uh, uh, some people have been looking up like what Russians are searching after this mobilization Yeah, and like they've gone up like thousands of percents, these searches. So one of them is, um, like, how do I leave Russia? Um, where can I go without a visa? And then the funniest one that I saw was how to break my arm <laughs> just to avoid um, mobilization. Which I thought, the, well, I think it's interesting because when Ukraine did something very similar, they were the, the Ukraine def- is yeah, still but, at general mobilization. Yes, but they were still at the de- they were the defending country, and they needed um, they needed the resources, they needed the troops if need be. You have the offensive country being Russia now doing a uh, mobilization. Not to mention Russia is the largest country in the world by land. And one of the world's superpowers, and it still has to do a mobilization to take out a country which they perceive to be weak. I find that to be an utter humiliation of the whole Putin administration. Well, that and the fact that Ukraine has to turn people away from the mobilization centers because they're like, we've got too many people. And people who had left ended up coming back. people apparently giving bribes to be taken into the armed forces. Yeah. Uh, there's a YouTuber that I'm watching. I've only found about found out about him recently, and um, he talk. So he's a Russian, but he's moved uh, when before the Soviet Union fell, and he's very pro Ukraine. And he's talked about the the mobilization, and he says it's a complete lie. You, you can't even believe it because 
it's not just going to be these um like reservists and people with prior experience in the military it's going to be like anyone they're just going to kind of um fake it fake it through just to get like enough members and stuff what made me laugh was that russia released its updated casualty figures mm. for their side of the war and after are we seven, six, months, seven, seven months of war only six thousand russians have died and it's like so you need to mobilize another three hundred thousand to be cannon fodder essentially <laughs> yeah i mean this is because yeah under yeah. ukrainian estimates we're at 55,000 dead Russians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I think the US is at about 40. Like they assume 45. Yeah, 45,000 Russians have died. Yeah. Not, not to mention, I was listening to an analyst today who was saying that by doing this, he's going to be incorporating and bringing into the fight part people in Russia who are, you know, middle class, upper middle class, who might have kind of distance themselves from the war because it didn't really Im- impact them as much. However, by doing this and the way this analyst put it, he said you're going to end up sending coffins to all different parts of Russia and spreading exactly how badly the invasion is going to all the parts of Russia and that can't play well in the long run. This YouTuber, he talks about Putin's whole uh, meaning about the mobilization. And he said in the beginning of his presidential term back in the 2000s, he pretty much change the mobilization from um being a conscription and serving for two years or how many years it was to just uh like contract and he's pretty much and he's pretty much gone with the whole idea it's like oh you don't need to we we won't force you into the army like you'll choose to join the army if you feel like it and he's completely backtracked on that and the other thing is is that putin's whole like um like electoral base in a sense is very depoliticized so they aren't really like attached to how like the politics work in russia or like they don't really mind what's happening and by doing this mobilization um he's pretty much forcing these people that sit on the couch just work they ignore politics to actually be focusing on the war now and he's kind of pretty much be driving them into a corner and in a sense, he's pretty much ruined his own base. Yep. So, and we were talking about this before we started recording, Andre. But yeah, we see two ways that this mobilization can go. It's either he sends them into the war zone as cannon fodder, or he does a swaparoo and puts these mobilized men on Russian bases or border or on the border and sends in whatever's left of the professional army. Yeah. But. Yeah. I have a feeling he's going to try and save as many professional soldiers. Given the fact that there was recently a um, a coal train in Siberia that was actually attacked by anti-Putin Russian partisans, um, if there's... I, I, I'm sure Putin's very nervous about removing professional troops from any other parts of the country, especially now given the unrest, um, given that other countries might perceive Russia as weak at the moment. So any border disputes they might have um, could, you know, escalate if he tries to pull troops out from different parts of the country. Hmm. We'll have to see how this goes in the future. Um, It's completely up in the air at the moment. But Um, as we can see, even with Ukraine's own mobilization, it takes months to properly train people. Yeah. And it's one thing 
to train someone to sit in a trench and hold a position because that only takes a week or two because mm. you, te- you just teach them how to use a rifle and be like, sit in this hole and don't let anyone come near you. It's a very another thing to train a civilian yep. to undertake complex military operations. And we've seen that with Ukraine. Like, yep. they've sent 10,000 soldiers to the UK to undergo proper training. Mm. Yeah, I think that's meant to be like a month and a half. Oh, it's a three-month program. Oh, three-month program, So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel terrible for these guys who are going to be cons- conscripted because, I mean... But if it's, you know, if they don't rise up now, they'll never rise up. I know, but imagine being a conscript that you might even support Ukraine. You get to the front line, and I don't know if you saw the head of the Wagner group that last week he was trying to recruit prisoners from Russia. Obviously, that didn't go too well because they didn't get the numbers, so now they're doing the mobilization. But he said to them, if you surrender, you will be shot. Yeah. So if you're a, you know... Ukraine supporting or anti-war Russian being sent to the front lines, it's either fight or if you try and surrender to the Ukrainians, you're risking your life. Well, the Ukrainians won't kill you. But you're risking your life at the Russians. To be honest, I don't really have any sympathy for the Russian conscripts that are being mobilized now um, just because they haven't really cared about Ukraine. Um, Like, you see these photos from Izium, from Bucha, from Mariupol, just all these places where there's death, there's um, genocide. But they might not see it. Yeah, but the whole point was is that um, they haven't actually done anything to protest the war in but Russia. State, that's that's what I see. I know, but as. state media in Russia would have suppressed a lot of that, so they might not have seen it. Going to the front lines, however, at they the might beginning, see it. At the beginning of the war, there was a couple of protests, but Yeah, it didn't go anywhere. And like you compared to the protests now against the mobilization, there's, I think, way more people. A thousand have been arrested. Yeah. So, there's clearly a difference between what the Russian just general person sees to what is actually happening. Yeah, so... We'll I think see. it's one thing for them, for for Putin to declare, well, it's another thing for them to be personally involved. Yeah. And hopefully more people rise up or there's just mass desertion. Yeah. But either way, Ukraine's already survived one Russian on- onslaught. Yeah. Um, another one won't really stop us. There was a lady I saw, she'd arrived, I think, in Germany... And they were, or France, uh, she had left Russia just in the last couple of hours. And when she arrived, she was saying like, look, you know, I, I don't want to say anything about bad about the government because I have family there. But she said, look, someone stop Putin. That's all she said. Because, I mean, someone has to stop him because at the moment he's doing threats of nuclear war because they're holding this referendum. And he's saying if anyone tries to stop them, then they're going to use whatever capabilities they have. And I'm worried if he gets backed too much into a corner and he's worried that not, I don't think he really cares about, you know, the Russian people, but he cares about his, you know, legacy to Russia and the state of uh, what Russia is going to be after his presidency. If he perceives that it's going to end with his, his humiliation or Russia's humiliation, who knows what he's going to do? Yeah. Thoughts? Um, I've recently saw an article where the one of the, I think it was a retired U.S. general, or it might be a current U.S. general, and they've presented options to Biden or like proposed options of what they might plan to do if Russia does go to the extreme and does um, use nuclear weapons in the war. Now, I'm wondering if a nuke goes up in the air. 
I mean, yeah, and this is the whole issue: is that what what's the response to that? Well, I'm. Well, Ukraine has said that if Russia nukes them, they're still not going to surrender. Well, I know in the Cold War, they, they had strategies in place where if one nukes in the air and they verify it, they launch nukes as well. I don't know if that's still the case. But if one nuke is in the air and it's deemed to be coming from Russia aimed at Ukraine, like, does China respond? Does India respond? Like, who responds with their nukes? So, it's, oh, man. In, in my opinion, I think the US will have to respond just because... They need to put. They need to keep North Korea and Iran in check. Yeah, and you can't let you can't you, let if it new- does happen. Then um, this is how we will respond. But depending on how severe that response is, just will determine if it will happen in the future. Because if they just say stuff and then just put in some sanctions, the North Korea like, will be launching nukes every yeah, day. Yeah, they're going to be like, oh, all they did was sanctions. So we already have sanctions anyway. Yeah. Anyway. A bad Let's hope state it's not good to nukes, but the West is definitely behind Ukraine, and we can see that like the US in their second or most recent set of aid packages to Ukraine allocated money to train Ukrainian pilots on F 16s. Yep. And we know at the start of the war, giving Ukraine jets was a big taboo subject. So if the US is now training Ukrainian pilots to fly planes that don't exist in the Ukrainian arsenal. Mm. I don't think there's enough coal mines in Ukraine to find F-16s like the Russians claim to find weapons in. Yeah. And I don't think... So we might be seeing a few F-16s magically appear across the border in the future Mm. and other more high-tech Western tech. Because obviously the troops in the UK, they're probably showing them all the new stuff that they're going to get. Yeah, Mm. definitely. As a final thing, I was speaking to someone in Ukraine and she mentioned that the support from around the world is making an impact. So as long as the diaspora keeps up the pressure and keeps make sure that these countries supporting Ukraine continue to do so, I think we have every chance of winning this war.